Minnesota is home to two of the most livable cities, the most beautiful natural scenery, and one of the most industrious creative cultures in the world. In recent years, a thriving democracy of checks, balances, and an adversarial media have been replaced by political rivalries and corrupt officials more focused on delivering for donors and interest groups than honoring the public trust. Increasingly, local media seems to be in lockstep with this enterprise. In the spring of 2020, this system broke down and sent shockwaves throughout the country. Minnesotans Ask is not about politics. It is about the breakdown in transparency and accountability to the public. We are asking what can be done to bring sustainable balance back to Minnesota government. Uh, hello, everyone, to another edition of Minnesotans Ask. And I'm very uh, pleased and honored to have with us today uh, three people who are uh, pioneers and innovators in the charter school uh, movement uh, in our state. Uh, and uh, we are going to be discussing some extremely important issues that relate to some litigation currently going on uh, that could impact charter schools significantly, but also have an opportunity to discuss with them why they are as passionate as they are about the work they do uh, with the, the students. Uh, uh, our future uh, in our community. Um, first of all, uh, we will talk in just a moment and get some background from folks. Uh, uh, we have John Cairns with us. Uh, John uh, was a member of the Minneapolis City Council uh, quite a few years ago, but since then has built a distinguished legal career uh, and a significant part of that legal career has been the work he has done representing and working with charter schools in the state of Minnesota. Uh, we also are very happy to have Wendy Hines with us. Uh, Wendy is uh, a founder of the Friendship Academy, uh, which was founded, I believe, in 2001, uh, and is also an expert on the financing of charter schools, which I know can be quite complicated uh, as well. Uh, and then last but far from least, we also have with us today Charvez Russell, who is the executive director uh, of the Friendship Academy, uh, but also has a national perspective from a lot of the work uh, that Charvez has done uh, throughout the years. Uh, so I want to start by just getting some very brief background from each of you. Uh, John, I know you started as a very young member of the Minneapolis City Council, uh, and at some point, very early on, you became involved in the charter school movement. How did that happen? In 1969, when I got elected at 28, I was representing the area where Southeast Alternative School, a school district within the school district was operating. So I had to learn quickly about K-12 education. And that was because while two school board members lived on my block, I would nonetheless get all the calls because nobody knew who the school board members were. <laughs> yeah. So I got into this and learned pretty quickly that um, when you have different ways of teaching kids and different opportunities for kids, they do better. When that program ended, so that was true during my whole city council process through 75, um, through 74. And it, it, the premise was you, you have schools to help kids learn. 
you focus on what kids are learning instead of all the adult rights. So that, that led me to a lot of education reform efforts with the Citizens League leading to the Charter School Report in 1988. First law was developed with me and others helping in 91, the first school opened in 92 with 60 students in St. Paul. There are now 4,000 charter schools around the country. So you were a part of the charter school movement, John, before we even had what we now call charter schools. Well, that's because of all the work we did in the Citizens League on how do you have schools and other, how do you have schools work for kids learning instead of for adult rights? But anyway, so the, it's expanded now. Um, we have over uh, 4,000 schools educating over 4 million kids. And so we'll get more into this later, your work with the Citizens League, but really that was critical in Minnesota being uh, the national pioneer. We were. And then, uh, so Wendy, in terms of your background, uh, you were a founder of uh, the Friendship Academy. And uh, what, what led you to that place? Well, I had worked as an accountant with a group that had a daycare. And the kids came out of the daycare flying high. And then they went into the public school system and all at once, they were well ahead of their peers, but they were not necessarily well received because of it. Some of the parents tried um, private schools. And also in one instance, there was a child where the private school actually said the child had cheated on the entrance exam. Okay, because he came out of preschool and he was, he, they just could not believe he was doing so well. Um, what followed was a movement of parents in both cases, well, in that case, to start a private school. And in our instance at Friendship Academy, that was led more or less by a group of people appointed by the pastor of our church at that time, who also recognized that children were not getting what they needed in many instances in the public schools. So we began this quest to start a school where children could truly thrive. And I've been attached ever since. So by the time you became involved in the charter school movement, unlike John, we already had the state law and, and, and the structure to create such a, such a school. Um, yes, the charter school law was already in place when, at the time that we started Friendship Academy. I was there probably just about the same time as the law uh, because we one of the places I was affiliated at was actually operating as a private school and then decided to go charter once they became aware of the charter law. So you are a, a current board member, but have been very involved since the, the start of the school. That's right. So we want to talk more about that as we work through this discussion, some of the evolution of, of the school. Uh, so Charvez, uh, you come, this is just a little bit, I was able to learn from the website, but you come, I think, from a, a, a family of educators, is that right? Yeah, I mean, it, that's, I, I like the progression, right? Uh, you got, you know, John, who was one of the founders of the law. You got uh, Ms. Wendy, who was one of the founders of the school. And then you have me that get the benefit from it all, you know, because I grew up in Mississippi and my whole family is educated. My dad, my dad was a longtime educator. 
everybody in my family was either in education or healthcare. Uh, so from the janitor to the mechanic, my grandfather, bus driver. I mean, I had my, I got an uncle right now that's one of the um, uh, top education officials in Mississippi right now. Uh, uh, and a retired aunt, I got the, I got two cousins who are principals at the school that I went to <laughs> right wow. now. Who would, my dad used to be the principal at a school, East Marion was the name of the school. And my dad used to be the principal that he was the builder. He was a, he went from a teacher to a, the middle school principal. Then he came to what we call the building principal over kindergarten through 12th grade. Cause we grew up in a rural area, very small town. So uh, everything was in under one roof, K-12. And he was over the whole building. Now I have, we got two cousins that are principals now. My uncle who was the head education official was the uh, uh, principal there uh, at one time. You got, I got an auntie who uh, retired principal. So a lot of educators and, and just imagine what holidays were like uh, for us. It was, it was all about what was going on at the school all the time. So, and I tried my best to run from it. Uh, I, I got out of college. I said, nope, I'm not going into education. So I didn't made, I didn't major in it right off the right off the bat. I majored in biology, thinking I was going to medical school, uh, trying to run from it. And um, I, I got out and taught uh, in Mississippi one year. And by the time I got to Minnesota, uh, the school had started. So I got to Minnesota 2001, same year the school started. And I was like, this is my first time hearing about the concept of somebody starting their own school and it's not private you know and it really you know it was really intriguing to me and, and uh, because i didn't know a lot about minnesota so i immediately got involved just volunteering and things like that and then uh i had uh, we my wife and i adopted four kids mm -hmm. and uh all four of them went through friendship academy doing great work right now uh, so i've been a parent um and then uh, opportunity opened up for me to be a teacher i left education and went to corporate America, still trying to run away, and uh, found out that my true home is in education. And you can't run away from your destiny. I can't. I can't. And uh, I couldn't, rather. Uh, so Ms. 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 Wendy, I uh, talked to Ms. Wendy. She offered me an opportunity to be a teacher. She was the board chair at the time. And then the executive director position opened up. Uh, and, you know, I applied, and, and they gave me an opportunity. And um, six years later, here I am. So we're going to take a deeper dive into all of this, but I think it's important for people watching this to, to recognize. Uh, so Friendship Academy is is what we then would know as a public charter school. Yes, sir. And and I think that's often confused because we also have a lot of private charter schools in the state. No, no, Paul, private and charter don't mesh. So you never use the word private and charter together. Okay. It's okay. only public charter schools. Okay, so... Um, a private school, we really shouldn't be using the language of charter schools. That's uh, it's a it's separate, but good. I just wanted to clarify that. Uh, well, I, I think one of the places to start then is with you, John, on the birth of the charter school movement. Uh, you, you touched on this, uh, that it really came out of then that Citizens League report. Uh, and what was it? in the Citizens League report that suggested that charter schools were an important facet of improving education in the state of Minnesota? There were, there were two or three founding principles. First, 
we didn't think teachers had enough control of the classroom and building. We wanted schools in, in which teachers saw themselves as partners. Secondly, there's, there was a growing interest in what's called contracting for private services. And Paul, you know we've had the waste management, the waste uh, disposal under a contract. That's one example that actually came out of a different Citizens League report. And there were all sorts of, we contracted with Microsoft, you know, contracting for all sorts of stuff. And we didn't see any reason you shouldn't be able to contract to manage a part of public school. And we created the idea of an authorizer or, uh, to oversee it, a nonprofit of one kind or another. Um, but at, at the heart of it all, it was we wanted schools to be run based on what kids were learning instead of how money was spent or what the adults' rights were and so forth. And so we were exempt from the State Public Employee Labor Relations Act unless the teachers at the school themselves wanted to organize. And over time, I think maybe we've had a handful of schools, not more than five, maybe more like three, who have actually got unions today. Um, but the premise was focus on kids learning. And that became the premise and the essential element of the 44 states now who have charter schools um, versus one in 1992. So Charvez, I want to turn to you because you were a teacher at Friendship Academy. I have a very, very close friend who's a teacher. and one of the biggest frustrations that he has shared with me uh, is the extent to which he doesn't seem to have control over what he can teach, how he can teach, um, just the bureaucracy that's kind of telling him every day what he has to do instead of being able to innovate. Was that, a, was that something that you were thinking about when you became a teacher at, at Friendship Academy? Was there a certain freedom that you had that you might not have uh, uh, in, in a, a different setting? You know, when I, when I first got to Minneapolis, I taught four years at, uh, in Minneapolis public schools, um, all four years on variances of different types and things like that. Uh, and, um, I definitely know the difference between how it is to operate as a teacher in the traditional public school versus charter school, uh, specifically friendship Academy. And it's just like you described. I mean, you go in and this is what you do. This is how you do it. And I remember it being uh, this is this is during the days of AYP um, and everything like that. No Child Left Behind was just taking off. And, um, you know, it was before the days of all the, the, the big assessments. They was just coming online. And when I first started and, um, you know, it was a lot, lot not a lot of accountability. Uh, uh, it was, hey, just teach it. Um, and then you 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 good, but then you know it, the bar was really low, but it was very prescriptive, and it was more about do it like we want you to do it, uh, as opposed to okay, let's focus on what the kids need, focus on results. And I immediately, because I, I I never I, I used to see the results of Friendship Academy, but I never until I became a teacher, I never seen how it actually worked. Sure. But then when I that time that I was a teacher, I saw it. I was like, okay. This is what it's about. You got to look at how they perform and not on assessments on, on like these big MCAs and everything like that. But it comes all the way down to how did they do on this this lesson? You know, how did they do on this assignment? Because then I look at myself and how I taught it and go back and make modifications. And then I uh, do it the next time I give the next lesson. So I'm watching them numbers 
after every lesson now. And that's something that I was taught when I came. I, I, I didn't come in with that knowledge. Uh, our academic director at the time really worked with me to focus on that. At the same time, though, she gave me the flexibility to be creative, you know? So I remember going to her and I said, look, um, I got I got a lot of standards to get in uh, before um, we, we take these tests. So I wanted, I, I just want to split everybody up and do these projects. So they kind of learning at their own level. I mean, something that wasn't been done when, when uh, other teachers weren't doing at the time. And she said, go for it. And I was like, damn, that's what I needed right there. And we had that year was our, the highest results that we had. 90% of our students were proficient in math, 80%, 83% in reading, 70% in science. Uh, so, and, and, and I came in in November, you know, so it was, is that creativity that allowed me to say, okay, let me do what's best for my students, um, and make those adjustments within these principles that I'm given. It ain't just like, okay, well, you just go do whatever you want. It's okay. Here are the principles you create within that. So that's, that's wonderful. It, it makes teaching the rewarding profession that it really should and can be. Mm -hmm. So Wendy, I looked at the, uh, mission and, and vision of Friendship Academy, and I was taken with it. Uh, and uh, it is uh, uncovering passion and revealing purpose. Maybe you want to expand upon that a bit. Well, we believe that every child has hidden genius and that they need to be exposed. If you take a child that comes from an affluent background, their parents are exposing them to various things. You don't know what the talent of that child is. You don't know if they're gonna be an artist or a dancer or a mathematician or an economist or a scientist, but you expose them to different things along the way and you nurture the things that they excel in. We wish to do the same thing. We want our children to touch a lot of things. Children who do not come from backgrounds of means get to see things maybe they see it on tv or they maybe pass through a museum but they don't get to experience it they don't get to do it themselves they get to see other people do it and we want them to have experiences that allow them to to intentionally decide what it is that they like and to excel at that and I, i'll give you an example of that we did a steam program at one point and uh, Mr. Carr was teaching the STEAM. He thought that the boys would be the ones who would really take to these science experiments that he had. But what he found out, there were a couple of girls who just took it and ran with it. And they were just like, okay, well, what's next? What's next? And they were the ones who were excited about things as simple as designing cylinders. <laughs> okay, so um, that's what we mean. We mean that we want them to discover who they are. Wow, that's a beautiful way to look at it. So I, I, I want to add this. This is something that one or all of you can answer. Uh, we're going to get to the litigation that is currently uh, pending that involves uh, public and charter schools, but. Um, no secret that Minnesota has some of the worst achievement gaps in the country. And how how are we to look at the achievement gaps 
in the context of charter schools. Have, have charter schools been a positive in closing that gap? Are they neutral? Have they been a negative? And, and how would you measure measure that? It, 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 any of you can jump in on that. Charvez, why don't you start and then I'll follow up. Well, I know that it depends on how you, if you measure it based on assessments, uh, I would say we, we've been fairly neutral, okay, just to be honest with what the numbers are. If you base it on igniting uh, creativity, um, increasing confidence, because I can, I can show you a school right now, uh, Paladin, out in, um, I think Paladin is out in um, Blaine, Blaine uh, who's also in the lawsuit, where they, their students have been rejected from the traditional high schools. All of them. They have students that come there that have been traditionally kicked out of many schools that go there and don't have any problems. And now the trajectory, because of that, the trajectory of their life has changed. Mm. They're not uh, dependent on uh, society to take care of them. They are able to stand on their own two feet. So, uh, and now be, being able to trust the world and become an asset to our community here in Minnesota, as opposed to um, you know, somebody who has this distrust for the world because of my education experience. And, and now you know, I'm reacting in certain ways and crime and all this kind of stuff. Uh, so you got a place like that whose test scores aren't the best, but truly changing the world. So when you talk about the achievement gap, it's based on assessments and we got work to do there. Uh, but if you're talking about, uh, you know, really making a difference uh, in the community and, 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 a, and a couple of things, giving our, 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 our children a choice, our families a choice on how they feel like their child can be best educated in what community they want to choose. And also, even though there is this thing that I'm still trying to uh, work and trying to break down this barrier between traditional public and traditional charter schools where we taking kids and uh, we, it, we like we out to uh, privatize the whole thing. And, you know, those narratives that are just not true. We've seen a lot of innovative practices, which is the original intent of charter schools. Give us an opportunity to create something small or create something different. And the practices that we learn can be used on a larger scale. So it's actually supposed to work in partnership with the larger districts, you know, and, and I've seen that happen. Uh, uh, whether it's said or unsaid. <laughs> I've seen some of the things that even we've done get adopted by other uh, uh, larger districts and, and larger networks. So it, it depends on what, what measurement, but I, I think we are, we have made a, a huge impact uh, on, uh, on the lives of children in Minnesota. So I may have this all wrong and, and you can all correct me, but if, if, if charter schools are successful and if charter schools are increasing the, achieve, the achievement of, of whites and students of color in equal amounts, wouldn't the result in the numbers on the achievement gap pretty much be neutral, as you're suggesting? Isn't that part of the problem? If, if, if your school is actually 
improving everyone's achievement, it doesn't necessarily do anything to close the, the gap. I don't know, John, if you would like to, to, well, to add to that. First of all, the national data is collected more often than you can imagine by the Hoover Institute of California and Stanford. They're probably the best. Uh, and they have, over the years, measured outcomes based on assessments from the public data, NAEP tests and all the other tests. Uh, increasingly, they're getting more accurate. And I would say in the last three reports, four reports, it's very clear that particularly for kids who come in underprepared, as the kind of kids that for the most part attend friendship, charters are much better. And there's examples in every major urban area around the country, the KIPP schools, the uh, YES schools in Houston. I mean, there's just hundreds of examples of why kids who are underprepared do, do better. They also do very well, of course, in schools like NOVA in St. Paul, which is in fact effectively all Caucasian. The point we're trying to make is that who's sitting next to each other in a classroom is not a driver towards student learning success. And, and the Stanford credo, it's called C-R-E-D-O, the Stanford reports and others. Now, sure, the teachers union and others come up with contrary information, but it, it's very clear that from an intellectual credibility and econometric credibility, the Stanford report is much higher. And we're doing very well in that. At, at worst, in Minneapolis-St. Paul, our lowest performing charters are about equal to maybe even slightly higher than the lowest performing uh, traditional public schools in both cities. As you get up into higher performing charter schools, we are way ahead for the most part on what's happening in so-called higher performing public district managed schools in Minneapolis-St. Paul. Um, but data, data can be what you want it to be, I guess. That's kind of the age old problem with data. Uh, but I think that by and large charters for kids, similar kids in particularly urban areas are doing much better. So Wendy, uh, a real life example at Friendship Academy, uh, in terms of how you, how the makeup of your student body uh, is formed. Uh, is, as I understand it, if there's more applications or more people eligible, you're required to have some type of lottery system. Am I right about that? That's true, but I want to step back for a moment and say that when we started Friendship Academy, one of the things that we were the most excited about at the time was that it had such a diversity of student body. However, once the school was actively opened, the, the parents that continued to work with us became largely African-American. Um, why that is, we we're, we're never have been certain of that, but we still, we promote, advertise, seek students of all races, creeds, colors, backgrounds. We have in no way intentionally become an African-American predominant population. Those are the parents who chose us. And the law wouldn't, the law wouldn't permit intentional selection of students. No. Nor so, does it for traditional public schools. It's open enrollment. So one might suggest that the mere fact that more African-American uh, students are choosing charter schools uh, is an indictment of 
the the failure of the public schools to educate students of color is that i mean that's at least one interpretation is it not I, I would agree with that. And I always use this, my anecdote, we had a parent come into a board meeting. She said her fifth grade daughter came in and told her mom, I feel dumb as a box of rocks. And mom said it just hurt her heart to hear her child say, I don't wanna go back to that school. I just, I'm not getting it. I don't understand. But the child actually came to the parent. The parent learned about Friendship Academy just from a friend of hers, even though she was a Southsider. She bought the child. The child within a year was academically back where she should be. So she had, she had improved, I believe it was two, and Chavez, you may remember this story, but I believe she had improved two school years in the course of a year. She had started to do things like ballroom dance and um, some of the, the um, coding things that we were doing and the child became very confident and happy as well as getting her academics up and the problem the parent had and the reason she came to us at that time we only carried through sixth grade and she said so now that i've got her in this situation where she's thriving where does she go from here so um i i can tell you that as a fact it is true that there are there can be significant gains for children in schools where they thrive so i want to then put this this is all provides us a context for mm -hmm. litigation that that uh was started i believe almost five years ago uh john yes. uh, and that litigation uh is litigation that i'll have you summarize as best you can uh, it's it's uh, uh, a claim or, or a lawsuit uh, relating to the desegregation of public and charter schools. Um, public uh, schools, us, charters are public schools, so it's public charter and public district schools. Okay, let me be. Yeah, thank you for that. But but tell us how that lawsuit began and what your role in that lawsuit is. It began in 2014 when uh, anti-charter folks tried to get the state by rule, not by change in law, statute, to require charter schools to follow what are called the integration rules, which we're, we've never been subject to rules. The, the critical element of charter is we're not subject to statutes or rules unless the legislature says we have to be. So we're, we're bound by health and safety things. We're bound by financial reporting. I mean, but other rules and regs don't apply to us. And that, the state tried to jam that through. They failed. The attorney, the administrative law judge said the state can't do it. They don't have the authority. And so the lawsuit came after that decision in April of 2015 to try to, by lawsuit litigation, effectively overturn the ALJ's ruling as a charter. It also alleged that the Minneapolis and Public and St. Paul Public School Districts and school districts around the state were failing to integrate in which was in their interpretation what Brown v. Board of Education means. The reality is it doesn't mean that today and it hasn't meant that for years. Uh, there's no excuse though for these achievement gaps and it's because in our view the, the structure is so hidebound by regulations and union contracts that 
just by example. When we started charter schools, we said to this traditional education network, look, we're just trying to demonstrate how better things can happen if you run schools differently. And they started to say, well, no, we're not going to permit you to be there. It was largely driven by the teachers union. And I say union to distinguish them from teachers because there are a lot of terrific teachers in Minneapolis St. Paul schools. They are today and there have been forever. The problem was that we weren't unionized and that's what drove the leadership of the teachers union crazy. And our first response to them as early as 1993 or even during the debate on the, on the uh, law itself, look, if kids choose our school because it's better for their kids, then Minneapolis needs to change their school so they can be equally, equally appealing to the kids and then can simply change what they're doing with their program and kids won't leave. That simple choice was never made by traditional administrators and, and teacher union leaders. Many teachers in Minneapolis actually do a lot of incredibly creative things, but they're hidden, if you will. They're not allowed to be replicated because it's different than what other people do. I remember so, asking, go ahead. Yeah, no, do I, I'm going to give all of you a chance to respond to this, but in a, a very simplistic review of Brown versus Board of Education, I confess I didn't go back and read the 1954 opinion. Everybody is taught that the basic premise of Brown versus Board of Education is that separate is inherently unequal. So uh, I want any of you to address kind of the, the, that basic argument that no matter how good a school is that if it's not integrated it's inherently unequal well, well I, can, I can speak to growing up in louisiana and my father before me my father told stories of having to walk probably five miles to school whether it was raining or snowing or whatever and that the for the white children there was a bus on this one occasion, he and his sister uh, walking home in the middle of a storm, uh, a kind bus driver stopped and he told them, I can't let you sit on the bus, but you can stand in the doorway and I will get you as close to your home as I can. Which he did out of the kindness of his heart and he could have lost his job just simply for the act of picking up a, black, a couple of black children and letting them out of the rain for a few minutes. So no separate, but equal was not practiced in a separate but equal way. And it comes down to the heart of the people who are leading the process. Back in that time, there was no concern for children who were not white children. And I can say in my generation, I was of the first group that integrated schools. I was a um, seventh grader <clears throat> and the high school, the school that I attended was first through 12th grade and it was all black. And in Louisiana, they could not get the white kids to come to our school. So what they did was they broke all of our high schools down to junior highs or technical centers and they built schools where both groups would go because they were new schools and where in general, the predominance was white. 
the impact that had on us. Well, okay, you want to be a cheerleader? There are eight slots, but you can have one. And all of the black girls in the school can compete against each other for that one slot. People did the best they could do with what they had, but it certainly was not equal. What we have now is different in that we're talking about school choice in a way where parents get to choose. There are many, many options. They don't get to choose just the public school or you know, the local district school or um, a school over here where only black children can go or only Somali children can go or only Hispanic children can go. They get to choose from the lot. And if they're not happy, they can leave that school and find another. That is infinitely different than what our society was going through when, when uh, Brown versus Board of Education was struck. The problem with the logic of Brown was correct. We had a failed society that was too segregated. There's no doubt about that. The remedy of Brown never worked. And we know that from 50 years of experience before the charter school movement came along. If the resources weren't equal, you simply moved black kids to suburban schools where nobody knew how to teach them and didn't want them. And it was the correct direction, but the wrong solution. And what we are adding to that is it doesn't, integration per se, doesn't do anything for kids learning. You gotta have both choice and you have to have successful classroom experiences. Brown did, never talked about whether kids could be learning or not. It's just those times that nobody thought about how do kids learn? What do they learn? What do they need to know? The whole world's changed on it. So what's changed, Charvez, and I'd like to have you share some of your own experiences uh, uh, as a child in the, the public schools, but what seems to have changed too is the very concept of choice. In Brown versus Board of Education, at least my understanding would be other than parochial schools, there was no choice. You went to whatever school that you were required to go to. So Brown didn't really address the issue of choice and whether that this separate is inherently unequal um, or in, segregated is inherently unequal didn't didn't address the you know what wendy and john are talking about here with the possibility of choice uh, but how do you put that in context with your own childhood in the mississippi schools uh well I, I, my family like miss wendy described earlier in terms of her experience was the first my dad tells stories all the time about how um, they had to go all these miles. They had to go past the schools uh, in their neighborhood to, to go to schools that they were assigned to. Uh, and, you know, once uh, they were able to, you know, walk through the doors of the neighborhood school, they were, uh, it was seven of them. You know, it was a whole neighborhood that they was gonna do it. But then at the end of the day, there were two families they end up doing it and to hear the stories of how uh, of what they went through um, in uh, during that time uh, is it's pretty heartbreaking and in, and by the time I got I came into the picture uh, let, let's say for example my um, the school I went to my dad who was the principal of my school he went to that school and by the time I got there it was all black 
pretty much 90 some percent African-American. All of the white families had gone to private schools or gone to the city school, figured out way. The city even um, uh, re redrew the district lines so that more of the white families could attend uh, the city school. And they they and they just did it again recently. You know, well, like with, like within the last year in my hometown to where they redrew the lines um, to where uh, well, I don't know what the reason was at that time. But, you know, during during my time growing up, uh, more white families would go to the city school or the private school and the county school, which was East Marin, is where uh, where we went. So even if even if it was uh, seen as a choice, you know, it, it wasn't because the, the things that um, were put in place to kind of box you in uh, uh, to certain places. So that, and that's why, and that's what I think is important is, is that we, we continue to fight for that. Uh, we continue to push for parents having a choice um, of where to, uh, where, they, where they should send their child and in terms of what's best for their education. I, I think John sent me an article the other day on Vermont uh, who has, uh, you can go to school anywhere you know uh it's based on where 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 what you think is best for your child and that's something that I, I think just makes sense you know especially in this day and age when everything is a choice you know and everything is personalized and our options are more than we've ever seen before but education is, no you you only get to go here and and i think this, this knowing what we know now uh from uh, uh, uh the brown case and everything like that i think that we should use that knowledge in this in this instance and and create more choice in the cruise guzman and create more choice uh for our families uh, and, and a shortcut way of saying that for me is we we start with brown v board of education as an essential element of the public world and public schools we've now added a component that no one even talked about in 1954 which is it's not simply who's sitting next to each other it's what are the kids learning and we're saying you add choice and student and accountability there's the other issue accountability for learning which we have and districts insist they have, but they don't have a school by school and they don't have the requirement that we do if we don't perform with academics, primarily or finance, we have, we close. I mean, there's a consequence for failure. So, so John, I, I wanna get to the kind of the brass tacks here. Uh, when you, we talked about the, the litigation that is currently going on, uh, I'm sure the, those that uh, have brought the litigation would have reacted strongly to your characterization, your uh, characterization being that these are anti-charter school folks. They would at least say, and I'm sure they're saying in all of their uh, documents that they're doing this because they care about the welfare of the, the, the kids' education. Uh, I'm a, a very much a skeptic of that, and, and I assume you are as well. But what is the, what do you think the real motivation is behind this lawsuit? I think it's several premises, but first of all, I don't think anybody in the case thinks Brown v. Board of Education was wrong. We think it was just not implemented correctly and didn't take account of learning. But the, I think the motivation for the case is to call attention to the fact that in Minneapolis and St. Paul public schools, the so-called racial balances and culture are directed by the government. There is no choice in Minneapolis and St. Paul public schools. We can't discriminate on entry. We take whoever signs up and if we have too many kids, we do a lottery. Now, 
that so they're attacking that concept of choice and saying the only way you understand if schools work well it depends on the percentage of culture sitting in the same room or building which we think is preposterous in fact we know it's failed it's demonstrated failure we're creating and we also think at the heart of it that they're challenging is we think our kids if they happen to be in schools like friendship or among academy or Twin City International, which are large East African, if they learn well and understand the society well because they get better educated, they'll be fine when it comes to being part of the world and community. That, so let me, let me ask you a question. Who, who if I could, uh, who is actually, are, are the, the, the unions themselves involved in this lawsuit or who's actually funding the lawsuit? Well, the plaintiff's counsel is just that they're not being paid by anybody. It's all voluntary. And we have no way of knowing. We can't make inquiry about that. Okay. But the, it's motivated by a 1995 case run by the same lawyer. They went to this uh, choice is yours type system that failed by any measure. And he's coming back now to try to recreate some of the dynamics of that case to get a better result. Uh, but he's going down a track that we can't accept. In fact, charters weren't even in the case to start with. We intervened. So over the objection of the state and the plaintiffs. And the judge said, well, look, two thir a third of your paragraphs and an 80 paragraph complaint are dealing with charges are failing to do. Why don't you want them in the case? That's ridiculous. So we got in. So they were actually trying to keep uh, Friendship Academy, charter schools. They were actually trying to somehow exclude you from the lawsuit. I don't quite understand how that works. So the, well, they charter, did. They only started the charter schools would have been, would have had the lawsuit dictate to them, but they yes. would have had a right to be in the lawsuit. I, that that sure. seems like a laughable position to me. That's exactly the position Judge Robiner took. She, oh, she wasn't laughing. She's a very serious, confident judge, but there's no question that was exactly what she was saying. So, now, so here we are after four and a half years. Charvez and French Academy higher ground in St. Paul and Pelham. We have had input from educators in the charter world educators of policy into the case and now what's been almost 17 let's see 12 we started in may of last year so we're now 18 months in the mediation and we're still trying to make it work and find a settlement but in this case we're, we're talking to the plaintiff lawyer who basically would rather not continue i don't think you'd have to ask dan on that but the state we're working with mde well, the legislatures aren't even in it, and they have to approve any resolution. That's with the governor. Well, so but it's, I guess it's a strange I, case. But I guess didn't I understand, or maybe I didn't catch this correct, that the state of Minnesota, through the attorney general's office, is actually a part of the lawsuit? Well, they're a party, but the negotiations we're doing are with the Minnesota Department of Education. It's very clear that they have never cleared any of their strategy with any legislator, Republican or Democrat. And so we are, we're negotiating something we can live with. What they want to do with the traditional public school districts like Metro, Metro-wide choice of some kind or whatever, that's great. I, we're, we have no objection to all of that. It's actually improving the choice system for Metro-wide parents. So and Wendy, kids, as if I could ask you uh, a question that comes to my mind is, uh, who are the parents or students of color who are supporting this lawsuit? <laughs> some kind of grassroots groundswell. Well, that would be I, my I, 
Yeah, so I, I want to take a step back and then I'm going to come come, sure. come down that road right quick. And when we talk about Brown Brown uh, versus Board of Education, a lot of people in my community see that as a mistake. And I'm going to tell you why. Because in the, and like John said, the idea, the concept, but the implementation was what was all wrong. Because mm -hmm. once the integration really started to happen, all of the black schools went away. The black educators, some of some some that were more qualified, uh, had better relationships with their students and with their families. Um, understood how the cultural context and and how they learn. Like all those things went away, and now you replace them with uh, individuals that saw it that didn't see them in the same way, that didn't understand the cultural context, and therefore was put at a disadvantage on how to best educate them. A lot of people in the African-American community view that as one of the worst things that could have happened. Um, now, the government is saying, like John said, it doesn't matter who's sitting next to who. And that was one of the premises, right? Uh, uh, all we wanted at the time was access. Right. You know? Our schools that we that my dad and Miss Wendy had to walk miles uh, that use secondhand stuff and old stuff wasn't giving us a chance. So we in that lawsuit we just wanted access. So the the thought was okay, well you got to sit next to white people in order to have a quality education. Now we now we've gotten to a point where charters have provided that choice, okay, and parents are choosing that where they want to go to school. And like Ms. Wendy said, we marketed everybody. You know, I mean, I, I even tried, I, we, we marketed this summer on the current, okay, the current of NPR. That's way outside of the demographics that we serve right now. Uh, but we, we, we put ourselves out there, but still the families that choose us, still this year, we uh, at almost 100% growth, 96% African-American. These are the families that choose us. So now this lawsuit saying that, well, y'all don't need to, that choice, we want to make that choice for you by saying, okay, you need to have a certain amount of, uh, of, of white kids and children of color, right? Which I challenge because in Minneapolis, in in, in, in the urban core of in, in the, uh, uh, the Twin Cities, you when you say people of color, you're talking about hundreds of cultures. You know, right. you talk about diversity. We've already, even if you look at the, the, the Minneapolis Public Schools on their breakdown in St. Paul Public Schools and the demographic breakdown, you, you mean to tell me that that's not diverse? <laughs> you know, so they said, you know, but it's all about being around a white child. Not so let, 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 last time I checked, and it probably has changed since I checked, there were 81 different languages spoken by students in the Minneapolis public school. But, but Wendy, I want, to ask, I want to ask you this question, Wendy, yeah. and maybe you too, John, but, but I'm trying to figure out how this would work. Um, let's assume that this case isn't settled and it goes to trial and there's a judgment and it, the judgment orders charter schools to integrate. I, how would that work? How would you even begin to integrate a charter school uh, I, that that doesn't seem to be practically possible given 
the model. But but I mean, I'm asking you to do the impossible. It seems like the court could be asking you to do the impossible if they would rule for the plaintiffs here, wouldn't they? That's exactly right, because if you think about it, charters have no geographic limit in the state. Right now, we're promoting as widely. If a, if a parent wanted to bring their child from Duluth every day, we take them. Okay, but they're not coming. And we're already promoting to get whosoever will let them come. So if you tell me I've got to have 20% white children, I have no way to force a parent to enroll that child. If we're talking about district schools, <clears throat> the district schools have somewhat of an advantage in that because they, they have a geographic reach and they have more money. They actually get paid more money to do the same thing that we do. Okay, they have um, perhaps more ways to market than we do because they have more resources. But there is no way that a charter school can choose the students that come. Let me ask you this: district schools, district schools have to take just inside the district. They have to take not inside a particular school. Right. So, so what, what, what's the threat if, if I am a parent of a charter school child? And what, what should I be concerned about? What's well, the threat that, of this lawsuit? Yeah, so that is, I'm coming back to your question that you had for me before, is that this, the parents that decided to uh, join us are those that feel that the threat is my choice is going to be taken away. I, I, I'm going to have the government tell me where my child should go to school as opposed to me making a choice and saying, you mean, I, I, and I think my child is best in an environment like Friendship Academy that's culturally affirming, uh, that ignites the creative and innovative mindset and, uh, that has a family feel. Every school has its own unique characteristics, right? And parents choose based on that. It might be STEM, it might be personalized learning, it might be whatever it may be. It may be, this is a school that's focused on math and science or business or whatever. So now as a parent, the threat is that choice is gonna be taken away. Well, and I would point out, Paul, that the mandatory government-placed education process for enrollment has failed. I mean, the achievement gaps, we've only been around in Minneapolis for 20 years, 25 years. The city district's been around for 100 years. And the achievement gaps are worse in the, in the district schools than they are in our schools. And that is a demonstration of why the system has not worked. We only educate 15 to 20% of the kids in Minneapolis. And we're showing that it's how you run the classroom and how you teach the kids and how you do what Wendy said way back how do they learn about who they are and what they're interested in? That's what charters do. And if the district schools don't change the way they're, they're going to educate these kids, charter schools will continue to grow. So this is the time in the program where I go on a bit of a rant. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> one, of the, one of the purposes of the podcast is to shine a light on really, really important issues that people aren't aware of that are affecting some of the most basic rights they have. And especially where one would assume they have some political rights in how those decisions are made. So I, I, any of you can expound upon this, but as I understand, John, the, the charter statute 
currently does not uh, compel charter schools to comply with these integration rules. As I understand it, the ALJ has said there's no authority to do this. Right. How I would interpret that is that the right way to go about this change, whether it's the right thing or wrong thing to do, would be to have public hearings to let charter school parents testify uh, and, and to have public hearings at the legislature and for every legislator to have to take a vote that they are going to impose these rules so that people can hold their legislators, the people they elect, accountable. Uh, it seems right now that if this is decided through the courts, no one in office, be it the legislators, the governor, would have any political accountability, and yet the basic rights of citizens, what could be more important to a, a parent than where they get to send their child? Well, when we started this case in early hearings, the judge made it very clear that she would never enter an order requiring public or public charter schools to do anything. Okay. What she's going to do if she ever does anything and we don't get it settled is she'll simply make a list of things that aren't working, whatever they may be in her mind, and tell the legislature to fix it. Okay. That's all that's all she can do. She can't force anything on anybody. And so we we know from the charter side. She can't force anything about how we do our rule, but the legislature has to deal with what the rules are. And so far, we've had many strong Democrats for these 30 years we've been in business support charter schools. Today, it's a little harder to read, but basically the legislature has been hands off on the charter school sector for 20 years. To be fair, John, it's been bipartisan, the support, hasn't it? Over yes, there? of course. When so, the Republican side, it gets mixed up with vouchers, which none of us like. But nonetheless, there, there is bipartisan support for charters for sure. Obama being the best example on the Democrat side. So one of the one of the things that comes to my mind, and then we're nearing the end of a conversation that we could go on much longer because it's so important. But one of the things that comes to my mind is, is the the move from former uh, Justice Page and the. Uh, uh, the chair of the, of the Minnesota Federal Reserve uh, for a constitutional amendment to clarify even further the constitutional right uh, to every child to a quality education. Um, that has not been well received uh, by teachers unions and other folks, as, at least as I understand it. If we are going to address really centuries old discrimination and gaps in education, wouldn't that potentially be a better approach? And isn't that what you are really talking about here? You're you're trying to drive results. So, in, in your words, Wendy, everyone's promise and passion is is revealed. It, 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 is that a better approach than relying on Brown versus Board of Education? Well, I think it in, it improves it increases the accountability. Uh, because it gives every student, no matter it, where you come from, a, a right. And, you know, one word I, I look at in that proposal is quality, right? So we can it, it, we can define that, and, and it, it, there's only very few ways you can define quality. Everybody, when you say quality, um, you have an idea of what that means. That means accountability. That means high performance. That means they deserve that. Um, by law, 
versus what we have now is a general and uniform, which doesn't work right now, according to what the law says right now, general, uniform, adequate. When I look at those three words, general, uniform, adequate, none of that applies to right now what's going on. Especially if we look at, you look at the quality of your microphone. That's a very nice microphone you got there. That's a high quality microphone. You don't want an adequate microphone to do podcasts like you're doing it. So why are we okay with saying our children who are the future of this state and this country, we okay as the adults who are responsible for them right now and they receive an adequate, it's okay. It's all right. As long as it's all right, we're fine. No, it's time for Minnesota to step up and uh, really push ourselves and get this done and be a model for the country uh, that um, we as a state can work together, charter, uh, traditional public and private to focus on quality, improving the quality, rural, urban, African-American, Asian, it don't matter, white, it don't matter. Quality, that those, every child deserves quality. Yeah, I think about how <clears throat> the nation of India at one point looked out and said, um, we have a very poor population what can we do for our country? And they looked around and said, you know, we don't have a lot of natural resources, but what we have are very smart people. If we educate our people, then we can lift our nation. And it came to pass that that same Indian nation, jobs that have been held by Americans went to India because America did not invest in the education of its people. We are quite often seeing segments of our population as not redeemable or somehow unworthy. And if we do that, we fail ourselves as a nation. The quality of the education that our children get will propel America into the future or cause it to be in a lower standing in the world than we would desire. Isn't it best that we reach to be first in the world for all it of those reasons. And let me make one final comment on that. The, the issue of money isn't the case. We spend more money per student than anybody in the world. Like sometimes more than don't. We have lower outcomes and lower results. Now that's completely denied by folks who oppose charters for sure. They simply won't deal with the reality that the traditional public school system, particularly for urban kids, has failed. We're trying to improve it. They could simply change the way they're doing their business and improve their own district schools. If they did, maybe kids wouldn't opt for charters. Who knows? But the, the end of it all is the, there's no way anything's going to happen. Well, let me go back to the amendment. I think the amendment is terrific because it, it's causing discussion about the right thing. The word adequate that Charvez is using is not in our state constitution. That's a court-imposed standard, and it was never decided what adequate was. It was an agreement between the plaintiffs and the defendants in a finance case that adequate describes what the constitution required. Nobody's ever defined it. We don't want adequate, but the issue with the constitutional amendment will always be, well, what's, what's the devil's in the details? I mean, what, what exactly are you going to do with it? And what does the legislature have to do to change the system? Well, they they have the same challenge right now. 
they know how to change the system. They just won't do it because the, the dominant political force are not the teachers, the great teachers in the Minneapolis and made St. Paul in state schools. It's the leadership of the union. And I think there is a real distinction there. That, uh, if, if, public, if, if teachers in the, would break down the barriers, if in the traditional schools you'd have less regulation, you'd let teachers do what Charvez has talked about and Wendy's talked about, it would be a completely different world. So the debate that's going to come out of that is quite positive. Exactly what the outcome will be, I think, remains to be seen. So I want to give each of you one last chance to, if people are watching or listening to this podcast and they share the passion that, that each of you have shown in the education of children and a quality education for all children, what steps can they, can they do in their own communities? What steps can they take politically? How do these issues get elevated in such a way that that charter schools uh, are supported, but even beyond that, um, the kinds of reforms we need in education, are, how, how can they help? I'll go last on this one. Okay, I think they can look beyond the discussions that say those versus thems, whether it's a charter school or a public school, um, I think there's been some languaging out there that would give people the impression that charter schools are somehow less than uh, striving to truly serve children. I think if they can look beyond that and look at the outcomes that the schools are producing and look for the uh, gold standard in terms of who is producing results and what they're doing and how those things can be reproduced in other schools. At one point, Minneapolis Public Schools was the uh, sponsor of 14 charters, but whether or not a charter school is in favor or not seems to have changed every time there's a superintendent change. Um, we're not the enemy. We strive to serve children. And I believe that individuals can look for ways to reproduce the good things that they're seeing that come out of all of the schools. Thank you, Wendy. Charvez? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the one of the most powerful ways to create social change is to change your social environment. Um, which means that you can you can control, control what you can control, influence what you can influence influence, speak up when you can speak up, challenge what you can challenge. Like Ms. Winnie said, do your research. Don't just listen to the narratives. Um, understand that we are in this together. Um, and that if, if if we go back to the true intent, which was with the charters would be innovation labs uh, that will actually partner with the larger districts to help us lift us all up. We're not in competition. We are better together. It's something that I always say. Um, and if if that is the case, and if everyone can stay and could could really uh, create that social change within their network, um, I think, and change this narrative, right? So you you don't have um, uh, those that want to make decisions for kids based on adult conveniences. Right. You know, if you hear these arguments, and it's all about. What's better? What's best for me and the, and the adults? 
you know kids are not benefit. They can say it all they want, but what what are they trying to change? Who's going to benefit from the change that they're advocating for? Uh, is it really the kids or the, the adults? Okay, because I see it all the time in the education community. We don't have a, a, a child problem. We have an adult problem. So if we adults understand it is our responsibility to make sure that our children are educated, then we don't have to worry about defunding the police. We don't have to worry about social unrest in a more educated society. We can have thoughtful, we don't have to worry about political discourse at the level we're seeing right now. We can have thoughtful discussion about our differences because we are exposed, like Ms. Wendy said, we're exposed to a different way. We got a teacher that said, when I wanted to spaz out in the elementary school that said, you know what, let's sit down and talk about it. I'm not just gonna kick you out and suspend you. I'm gonna give you the tools and what you need to change. I don't care, it, it doesn't matter who's in, who they sitting beside or who's in front of them. All we need is someone who cares and someone who's passionate about not only that child, but this community, our city and our state. The legislature gave the school districts across the state, including Minneapolis St. Paul, the authority to create their own independent site-based management schools, i.e. their own charter schools. That happened in the late 90s. The districts have never, ever used that. And that is in part because in Minneapolis, right now, all nine school board members are endorsed by the teachers union. So they're in effect managing their, their own adult rights by having the people in charge be themselves. If the district would simply say, and district board members, uh, we could have a whole seminar about what the board members do or don't do, but the district has the authority right now to create their own independent charter schools on a contract basis. They've never used it. We need school board members who say we're going to use that. And that would make a huge difference in how the other 70% of the kids, 80% of the kids in Minneapolis learn. And they eventually, I think, do all the things Wendy and Charvez have been so articulate about. But until the adults change on the school board and start using the authority they already have, charters are going to continue to grow because parents aren't going to wait. And ultimately, we have to create a political system that holds those in power accountable. And, and uh, uh, that's uh, at the heart of all of this. So uh, as I talked to all of you, I'm inspired with your efforts. And it's incredibly frustrating to me to see the, the work that you're doing and the challenges that you face in it, uh, unnecessary challenge. But it also gives me a sense of optimism that the tools that we have to help our kids are there if the parents just get out of the way and, and, and if we have the kind of leadership. So um, I just want to thank all of you so much for all of your leadership. And uh, it's been a great discussion. Thank you it's all. It's not parents, Paul. It's if the adults get out of the way. Parents are doing the right thing. That's fair. The adults. I should have said adults. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Parents and the kids. Yes. Thank you so much for Let having us. The airs. We want to, we want to help, help uh, spread the word. So. Good. Well, uh, well, hopefully a lot of folks that listen to this will will uh, uh, will respond and, and become more engaged in these issues. So thank you all so much. All right. Thank, thank you. you.